0: The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management.
1: Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money, here on News Talk 1400 and 939 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now on the money with your host Paul Rudy.
0: Well, good morning everybody and first of all, happy Thanksgiving to all the listeners out there. We hope everybody has a happy and safe especially safe uh, holiday week and uh, hope everybody gets to share it with their family as I will I have about 20 people. <laughs> I was telling everybody in the studio, anybody that would listen to me, how I spatchcock the turkeys. I have two 20 pound turkeys and I cut the backbone out and you flatten them out. It's, I've never done it before. Um, Ina Garten, I think she does it. And I got her recipe for their, her dry brine, which is the zest of one lemon and three tablespoons of salt and a tablespoon of chopped fresh thyme. So, <laughs> I think we'll see, the, Ryan. I think oh. we're on the wrong show Oh, this today. isn't the cooking channel. This
2: isn't Paul's uh, Cooking with Paul show. Well, just pointers out there. I'm just mentioning, you know, if
0: you're going to have a lot of people at your house, how fortunate you are. And, uh, you know, I enjoy doing a lot of cooking, and so I'm kind of looking forward to it. All the siblings, your siblings-in-laws will be in town. Paul and uh, Daniel are going to be in town. So, it'll be the first time in a while we've all gotten together. So. Yeah. Looking forward to it. I have certified financial planner, uh, professional Ryan Repko with me, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. And, and we did promise that David would be back, but because of staffing shortages this time of year, we decided to, to just to not invite Dave. Well, we invited him. <laughs> we just said not really necessary today. I,
2: I think we're just going to delay his triumphant return a couple weeks. So stay tuned till December.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. It'll be exciting. You can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Cooling Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Well, today I thought Ryan we will try to – we're approaching – we're going into the last month of the year. There's certain things – you know that need to get done before the end of the year. We're going to talk about a variety of them. Uh, you know, tax issues, retirement issues, just general financial planning issues, and I think that might be helpful to people. I think there'll be one or two things I think each listener will go, "Oh, I didn't know that," or "Oh, that reminds me, I really need to do that."
2: Yeah, I think this is a perfect time to do it too because here we are, about a little more than a month left in the year. It gives you enough time to. Uh, think through some of these things, do a little maybe of your own uh research, or make some changes if you need to, whether it 's tax, whether it 's insurance, whether it 's estate planning yeah um so it just gives you a little bit of time. You know We look at this and say, well, end of the year is still a full month away we 've got Thanksgiving, we have Christmas still, we have a lot going on, uh but there 's time to make these changes so if if you 're listening to the show today, just know that you know these are things that can be done with relative ease
0: right, and you know s- some people wait towards the very end of the year, and I'm worried a little bit this year that, you know, staffing shortages and employees, you know, companies are having a hard time, and employees, the the queue could be a little bit longer. So I think we have to allow, so we we normally would do this in December, but I thought, well, maybe we'll do that today, because get a little jump on it, because things could get a little more, it's not just the supply chain issue for, you know, turkeys and things like that. (laughs) Exactly. There's a shortage of people out there, and I think everybody recognizes that, and so I noticed that when, I, you know, trying to change flights or make a reservation um, with American Airlines, you know, good luck getting through to anybody right away uh, or even, you know, in five minutes. So, usually now you just schedule a call back, you know, three mm-hmm. or four or five hours away. So, just trying to get in front of it. But before we get started, well, I think the markets like the idea or a little comfortable with the idea that Jerome Powell, the head of, head of the Federal Reserve... Um, was selected to be, you know, to maintain, be maintained as the Fed chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Hale asked me what I thought about it, and I said, Mike, I'll be honest. I mean, I follow a lot of stuff on the Fed, but I'm not sure whether I could say that's a good idea or a bad idea. I- I'm neutral on it. I just I don't feel strongly one way or another. And I tried to remind him that all the money printing and all those things really are done out of the Treasury anyway. But the Federal Reserve, obviously, is a very important a role they kind of transform money, you know, they they move money around, and uh, and of course they have a can have a huge influence on short term interest rates as well. So yeah. my guess is, you know, gun to the head probably is probably a good stability factor, mm-hmm. and I think he showed himself willing to take on a president or not be completely political when I think it was in two thousand eighteen he started tapering and increasing interest rates and backing off the ease quite a bit and uh, of course President Trump at the time was steaming mad as he usually was at something and uh, so I'm comfortable there and probably not the best time in the midst one thing's for sure uh, the the current administration um, by keeping him on with this recent inflation that's you know suddenly is higher than it's been for a long many years Um, they'll own that if Mm -hmm. Chairman Powell doesn't you know get as i think he will get inflation under control i don't see where inflation next year is going to be like this year just simply because this year was more of a when you look at year over year where we were a year ago suddenly you know you go the next 12 months from this current base you're not going to see the kind of inflation that people have seen and witnessed and i've i've certainly wist, witnessed it. it seems like going out to restaurants is really prices have increased and i remember talking to jimmy john earlier in the uh pandemic and he knows a lot about just the food industry and restaurant industry and he rubbed shoulders with some of the biggest you know the heads of the biggest you know retail food chains in the in the country and world in some ways and his I said what do you think is going to happen to the mom-and-pop restaurants and he said oh I think I think I recall he said oh probably 40% of them will be gone he said you're going to end up with many more you know, the national chains are really going to be the dominant players. Not that they weren't dominant before, but they're going to increase their dominance. And they're going to have the ability to increase increase prices, which they've needed to do. But there's just been so much competition mm-hmm. in that industry that they really haven't had much pr- you know, ability to increase prices. And I think they're certainly doing it now. Uh, so let's get to year end. I want to start out on investments. So just kind of in a general sense. Um, what are some of the key items or issues people ought to be thinking about?
2: I think maybe awareness, it would just be like the most simplest place to start is knowing where you currently are invested in the amount of stocks versus bonds. At the high level, the big picture, how much do you own in the stocks, the the stuff that's going to give you the most price appreciation over your lifetime. Um, Is this
0: year particularly uh, why you really need to pay attention to it, maybe more so than your typical
2: year, certainly. I mean, with this year, you know, we we look at it and say, "Wow, there's been so little volatility, so little downward movement. It's been seemingly a tale of just upward progress throughout the year." Um, and I, you know, I've talked about in the past that that brings its own challenges. But for the purpose of um, looking at it for the end of the year, you just want to make sure that if your intent was, for example, to be fifty percent stock, that you're not. Pushing fifty-five or sixty percent stock, or whatever it may be,
0: well, with the stock market, uh, the U.S. stock market up twenty-five percent, a global portfolio broadly diversified around the globe probably up 21 percent. Uh, it's certainly going to magnify some of those issues, and so it's not that difficult if you started out the year on a fifty percent stocks, fifty percent bonds. Uh, you know, to be sixty percent or sixty-five percent wouldn't be or more yeah. uh, unusual.
2: And and so it's not to say that going that high is bad. It's just that if your intent was to be around 50% and now your portfolio has grown over the year to a place that it's, you know, 60, 65, whatever it may be, and the intent was to be at 50, well, then the action item would be to consider maybe you need to make some moves to get back to your target allocation of stocks and bonds. Yeah.
0: So I I see a texter, um, and it says, again, I'm struggling with my eyes a little bit. I will be going to the eye doctor. What percent could one, uh, could one of your 60 year old clients withdraw from their IRA and not touch the principal? There's a lot stacked into that question and Mm -hmm. not touch the principal. I think that's, if I had to, it's not the same question people would ask. Some people, most people will say it this way. How much can a 60 year old begin to withdraw from their portfolio? But when you add on and not touch the principal, Mm suggest a different type of investor and and even there's permutations on that like well not touch the principle but could it fluctuate uh that would be another dynamic so maybe we can we can talk a little bit about a kind of a few different and you now what i might start is okay if i wasn't focused on absolutely preserving principle um, I would say if you could be flexible in your spending for a 60 year old you could probably start out spending four and a half to five percent that means when I say flexible that if your advisor says hey because of current market conditions uh, that haven't been good uh, we have to reduce your spending from fifty thousand to forty five thousand or forty two thousand for a while until things get better that's the kind of flexibility I'm talking about so mm-hmm. that person might start out as high as four to five percent with that willingness an ability. So you have to have the willingness, but more importantly, you also need, you have the ability to go through uh, a modest reduction in that withdrawal amount.
2: And and that would only be potentially if this event shows up for a short period of time, it's not forever. So it's just like you say, to having that flexibility during key times where maybe the stock market is down in a just normal run-of-the-mill bear market, roughly down 30%, you're stocks are down that temporary amount for that time period, having the flexibility to not have to draw on those assets when they're temporarily reduced. Ideally, that's when you switch to using bonds. Um, well,
0: you would. And naturally, in that scenario, um, you know, I know people are a fan of the bucket approach, but it all gets to the same place. If, if you're a 50% stock portfolio, 50% bond portfolio, just to make things easy, and the stock market falls 30%, well, of course you're not going to be selling out of your stock market component because first of all, you're out of balance already. So really, in in reality, you're gonna to need to be selling bonds and buying more stocks to shore it up. So I don't see that as an issue, uh, but you're right. You, you, know, you definitely don't wanna be selling into it and mm-hmm. that's what your reserves are for. Uh, you, know, you have 50% in your stock so you, you, know, you can eat and 50% in bonds so you can sleep. That's kind of the way I look at it. When we talk about not touching principle, Assuming one could you know allow it so not dipping and actually selling anything in other words, preserving principle, if I do it in a sense that it can fluctuate, but I just don't wanna eat any of the shares, I just wanna live off dividends and interest now you're looking at maybe one and three quarters to two percent on a stock portfolio. Uh, maybe not even that much in a bond portfolio so you're probably at one and a half percent plus or minus a quarter percent if you just want to live off dividends and interest right now in this environment and then of course if you want to perfectly preserve pre- and you're gonna have some you know you're gonna have fluctuation and that stock market component is gonna fluctuate quite a bit if we think in terms of perfectly preserving our uh, principle that is uh, I'm 60 years old when I'm 90 and wake up on a cloud I want the five hundred thousand dollars I began with. I want to be able to give my children or my grandchildren or some institution I dearly love five hundred thousand. I don't want it to be four hundred ninety nine. I want it to be five hundred thousand. You can do that, and of course, then once again, you're just probably living off fixed income producing investments, uh, bonds mainly, uh, savings accounts, uh, money market accounts, things like that. Uh, and then whatever the interest rate today is, uh, and, and, and that really depends on your mix of those fixed income producing investments. If it's treasury bills, you're not even going to get a quarter of a percent. If it's CDs, maybe if you're lucky, you get a half to a 1% per year. And if you're looking at short-term high-quality bonds, maybe one quarter 1.25% per year. Okay. Uh, the danger of thinking in terms of preserving principle for 30 years is, yes, you'll write the children will get a check for five hundred thousand, but you will have lost half of your money because money is ultimately purchasing power. And that five hundred thousand dollars, if history is any guy, guide, and I think it's the only guide we have and need, um, chances are that you've probably lost half of your purchasing power and maybe as much as two thirds.
2: Yep, agreed. And that was going to be the comment I was going to make. Is a lot of times when I hear questions like this, people are are thinking about you know safety first, preservation want to give the legacy to the kids or entities that they love. But what they potentially may forget, like you brought up, is that purchasing power component. And you think, oh, that's right, because if I'm 60 and it's 30 years from now, I want to be able to preserve that. So it's not just sitting there idle, but it's actually growing, if not keeping pace with inflation. And I think that's the biggest risk that a lot of people can miss out on by putting this uh, preservation rule in place where they just want to keep their principal is the high likelihood that you might keep you you will not likely meet um, inflation increases over that period of time. Especially
0: if you're spending the income, you're 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 almost guaranteed not right. to, to the extent there's any inflation, at all. So these are the things uh, you know that one needs to be aware of. Flexibility matters. Can I put up with some fluctuation, even if I don't want to eat into my principal? Uh, that that's going to allow for more than just a interest only situation. Uh, but, you know, probably what most people have heard about is the 4% rule, but that can't be confused with preserving your principle because right. that is we're gonna, going to start out spending 4% or maybe 4.5% now. The author of that study says if you're more diversified, maybe it's 4.5%. Um, I have my little bit of doubt about that. I don't really like the 4% rule because no more than I would go on a trip with a car that has no brakes and no mirrors on it because I'm not going to make adjustments you know, depend regardless of what the conditions are outside. And that's basically what the 4% rule does. And, and there's a lot of flaws in the 4% rule, but it is a reasonable guideline mm-hmm. for saying, well, it's not 10% and it's not 1%. We might argue as some are that it's really the 3% rule now or three and a half or four and a half. The point is you're gonna have to be flexible and you're better off to have what I call guardrails in place where you know that there's going to have to be some adjustments made and you need to have a really good understanding of, or at least your advisor does of where those come into play. Yeah,
2: because oftentimes if you do follow the the 4% rule by William Bingen, uh he was the author of that paper, it's basically just saying, well, no matter what happens, I'm going to pull out the same 4% with an increase for right. inflation year after year. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that you couldn't have spent more during life or maybe there's times that if you would just pull back a little bit, you would have actually gotten to a far greater place later in life with higher ability to spend more or enjoy life or gift more at the end of your plan by simply having a dynamic spending throughout life. So as things are doing well, maybe you speed up a little bit how much you can spend as things aren't doing so well financially speaking, then you pull back a little bit. But the 4% rule I think was I think, it was great for the benchmarking just gives you kind of a a, a concept of where to be and I think it's good for someone who might be a do-it-yourselfer, but also troublesome at the same time because if you're not following essentially the model that this researcher William Bangen had done, like 50% stock, 50% bonds, U.S. Treasuries only, U.S. large companies only in the stock component. That was
0: the initial study. You then modified, you modified it, uh, you know, and added small company stocks and more diversification. And then came up with the idea that maybe it's the four and a half percent rule. Right.
2: So to the extent that you're following the paper, you know, it's it's less dangerous, the one-size-fit-all approach. You're probably not going to have as big issues. But I look at it and say, well, if I had known I could have spent more during life or been a little more flexible or help iron out problems for family or whatever it right. may be during life, I would have liked to have known that because that could have potentially yeah, there's no benefited feedback. me.
0: Yeah, there, there's no feedback loop in right. saying, hey, you're way ahead of plan. You can, you can either spend more money or give away money. Right now, I mean, isn't that – I mean, our day-to-day uh, conversations this for a good chunk of this year have been, your plan's overfunded, Mr. and Mrs. Client, uh, what's that mean? It means you really have more critical mass of assets uh, than we had planned on having at this point because we're always sandbagging and assuming things are not going to do well. And if things just do halfway well and, and let alone above average, suddenly you're in a position where you can either increase the funding of your goals or fund new goals. And what I find, and I don't know if, you know, when you're talking to to clients um, that are, say, they're in their uh, 70s and they're, you know, they're halfway into retirement and their plan is overfunded. They want to know what the options are. And and rarely is the, you know, the one option, of course, is, well, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you can, that means you can spend another $800 a month for the rest of your life. And they'll look at you and say, "Eh, Paul, we're really not spending what you're sending us now so we don't really feel the need to do that and then i've seen you guys do this too you shift and say well then you could give every each of your children you know $35,000 and the plan would be right back you know to its you know properly funded viable self
2: <laughs> and then you get the the face of shock and disbelief when the, when you put out a big number like that um because it's it's almost for most people i think most our clients anyway it seems impossible to be able to give away large sums of money right. and still have your plan as it's as it's been defined viable for the rest of your life um and i think that is one of the significant values of having someone uh who is reviewing your investments reviewing your plan is being able to look out uh and say well this will be a time where you can maybe do something that maybe you hadn't given yourself permission to do right. maybe it's that family trip right you know maybe it's that This wonderful trip everyone gets to go on that, you know, maybe we had talked about for years, but we never gave ourselves the ability to actually put, you know, pencil to paper and schedule it on the calendar and and invite the family. And it allows for like the building of memories and maybe what what finer legacy to give than the opportunity to use maybe some of those times where the market has just done better than, than our plans have expected to enable those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. So it's, you know, it's the saying what more possible can we do, uh, you know, with the, with where we're at right now with our income streams and our, you know, uh, amount that we have in our investments. So just being aware of that. So anyway, so thanks for that tax. Uh, text. I'm sure that's on the mind of people. You know, I'm always tinkering and doing studies as well. I'm doing one right now. I hope to patent it. I think it's a really neat retirement idea of how to fund retirement and how to go, how to approach it. But I'm getting kind of the same answers without – I guess what I'm coming up with is there may be ways to fund a retirement with less money and less stock market exposure than one might be doing today. But So I'm, as that develops, I'll, I'll talk more about it at another time. What about consolidating accounts? I mean people – it strikes me that after almost four decades, almost everybody walks in with a junk drawer of investments. Now, you probably have to be a certain age to understand what a junk drawer is. Unfortunately, I qualify for that. I'm old enough.
2: Yeah. So I think for most folks, you've probably worked several jobs in your career. It's incredibly normal. Um, It's getting pretty rare now where we talk with a retiree who says, I spent uh, 35, 40 years at this one company. So I have one retirement plan and maybe a pension. Now it's obviously a lot more common for people to have multiple jobs or even different careers throughout life. And they've acquired various 401k plans or 403b plans. Sometimes I see them uh, kind of like, you know, for lack of a better term, left stranded. Like they're still at their old company, never been touched. Just, well, it seemed easy just to leave it there. It was doing fine. Um, and now this might be a time where you can take a look at maybe all of those investment accounts that you have and look at maybe possibly consolidating them into one 401k, your current uh, 401k, or roll over multiple plans into an IRA, for example, if that if that isn't allowed at your company. And the advantage of doing that, uh, first and foremost, of course, is just simplicity. There's less accounts to manage, less to forget. Um, as you're in your 30s and 40s, you're probably pretty with it and remember that well. As I start meeting with clients who are progressing from their 60s and 70s and then from their 70s to 80s, that even becomes even more important, just the important, the important aspect of having things in one simple place. Um, and then there's just the practical side. There's probably going to be less fees because you're not paying administrative fees on multiple 401Ks or 403Bs, nothing that's probably overly material. But I mean, if you're not having to pay them and you don't uh, by just consolidating, all those dollars, of course, just stay invested in your account and don't get eaten up by fees.
0: And it's 401K plans are getting better than they used to. When I started in this field almost four decades ago, I mean, you know, the fees were atrocious in 401Ks uh, and it would be an automatic that you just, you roll out and go into something more fair. There are so many more 401k plans that it's not a sin to uh, keep money in an old plan if it's mm-hmm. if they have good options, they're inexpensive, et cetera. Yep. Um, but trust me, and I think you'll agree. Uh, as each year ticks by, the more simplification your people are going to want to are going to strive for.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And,
2: and one thing I think it's important to point out there too is. There's the option if you wanted to potentially consider retiring early, if you want to retire at age 55, you can pull funds out of uh, your 401k without incurring the extra 10% tax penalty that would be taken out of uh, an IRA account. So if that is of any consideration for anyone, um, that's an advantage of rolling an old 401k into your current one, for example to preserve that early retirement age. Yeah,
0: you. so if you're thinking about re- retiring at 55, between 55 and 59 and a half to avoid the penalty, uh you might even look at your old 401k that you have to roll over and you roll it into your current 401k Precisely. and increase that balance and and keep it out of IRAs for that purpose. Um what about you know selling or either harvesting ca- you know, I never used to think too much about this, but you know we always talk about tax loss selling. Mhm. Um, it's hard to imagine there's a lot of things that have a tax loss at this point after a broad U.S. market return of 25% and a global of 20, 22%, somewhere in that zone. But I suppose it's conceivable that somebody happened to buy something in, in the near term. It did decline in that period. Which one is there one more important than the other? Is, is harvesting losses more important than harvesting? capital gains, or are we going to get to the capital gains issue from the harvesting and the tax issues section? Well,
2: uh you just look at it and you say, well, if I have losses that I can take, and I know I've already, I'm going to, th- for most people, they're probably going to have gains this year to the extent that they have a taxable account. So a non-IRA, non-401K, you're go- you're almost certainly going to have some pretty sizable gains this year just because of the, ec- the extent of the market. Uh, so there's probably going to be some gains if you look at your taxable account and you see some account, or some holdings rather that are in a loss position, uh, that would be probably non-bonds. It's probably more ideal to to harvest out of stocks or stock mutual funds. Um, That would be a candidate where you could say, well, I could sell that for the loss. It'll offset the gains for the year and potentially um, reduce then your taxable income for 2021.
0: Especially this year, we could have larger capital gains distributions from actively managed stock mutual funds. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. And so maybe those losses will help offset that. Um, is this the time of year where we have to watch out for large capital gain distributions? If we're thinking, s- suppose I inherited $100,000 and I want to invest this predominantly in stock mutual funds, for example. This is the kind of time of year you have to watch out for little time bombs.
2: Right. So it's it, it's called the ex-dividend date when you buy in a, into a mutual fund. And at the end of the year, it's especially important to consider. What you don't want to do is buy the mutual fund um, and essentially acquire the funds without receiving the dividend income that it's paying out because you'll have the taxable income on that fund without the actual dividend that they're paying to you. So,
0: so you have- if you had $100,000 in a stock fund and they paid out $10,000 in long-term capital gains early December and you had just purchased that, you're going to report that $10,000 of long-term capital gain, even though you'll still have $100,000, You haven't your, your overall account hasn't appreciated. They've just internally sold Uh, some of the securities in the portfolio and generated that gain and that's going to just be reinvested at that as the price drops once they pay that dividend so you're in no better position other than you've paid a tax that you could have avoided
2: right so it's just something to be wary of and to watch over Um, is that
0: something people can talk to at this by this time of year do you think most mutual fund companies have a pretty good concept of what their their end of the year they tend to be larger they tend to do most of it towards the end of the year it probably makes sense to call your mutual fund. This is for, like you said, for, this is for non-tax-privileged accounts. This is just for like a taxable brokerage type of account to call and find out what are we looking at.
2: Right. A simple call could avoid a, a potentially large you know, tax burden. So no reason not to. I know our fund company puts out projections, you know, late uh, late November or sometimes even early November. So you generally have a good sense of it. It's not necessarily 100%, but you know a good sense of what it's going to be. But it's not
0: going to drift wildly from exactly. that by that
2: estimate. And my suspicion would be most fund companies are going to be doing the same. So,
0: well, what about when it comes to retirement accounts? Um, this time of year, what type, what are some of the things people need to be thinking about, the key issues?
2: So for somebody who maybe hasn't filled up their bucket for uh, their 401k or 403b, you can invest or contribute $19,500 in a 401k or a 403b for anyone that's under age 50. Um, you can kind of amplify that by an extra $6,500. You can contribute a total of $26,000 for the year out of your uh, paycheck into your 401k or 403b. Um, so to the extent that you have, uh, not met those maximums and that's something you're trying to do, just being aware of how much you've already contributed. So if you want to, you can max that out because once you get past the year, you can't retroactively, uh, go back and fill those buckets up. Uh, so it's always just wise to know, um, if you do a 403b or 401k traditional, uh, style, um, as opposed to a Roth style investment, That's going to reduce your income. So it just offsets the amount of income by the amount that you've contributed. So your taxable income will go down. If you're doing 401k or 403b Roth-style contributions, um, it does not reduce your income. So it all shows up as income for you this year, Um, but it'll be tax-free to the extent you follow a handful of rules by the time it comes to withdraw those funds. So it'll grow tax-free. It'll come out tax-free. So the advantages of doing a uh, Roth-style versus traditional would be if you think you're going to be in a higher tax bracket in retirement when you're re- were pulling those funds out?
0: And I think that's one of the things. Uh, I think people overestimate what their tax brackets will be in retirement. Now, not the super wealthy. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the millionaire next door. People that have worked for thirty, forty years, they've diligently saved. They have seven hundred and fifty to a million and a half dollars in their, uh, you know, four hundred one k accounts, et cetera. Um, you know, I think it just it seems to be for those people, um aren't you finding that well when you consider you could have a hundred thousand dollars of adjusted gross I'm bulb, I'm just approximating right here. I'm not going to the exact I like think it might be a hundred and three thousand. And by the time you take a standard deduction, you know, you're still not going to climb out of the twelve percent, you know, tax marginal bracket. tax bracket. So for for most people, they're probably not even gonna have a hundred thousand dollars of adjusted gross income before their standard deduction. So I think this is one of the things to think about and talk to your advisor about is, hey, can I get a projection of what my uh, marginal tax bracket and my average tax bracket is going to be throughout my retirement? Now, none of them are perfect, but they're probably not going to be wildly off.
2: Right. And, and of course, uh, you know, anyone will be able to tell you that, of course, that's if, if the tax loss remains unchanged, and that's always the X factor. So we're making decisions today with complete unknowns about what the tax – uh, laws and the, the tax rates will be in the future. But that's all we have to go on, so we must do it.
0: Well, we know after World War II, we had similar conditions as far as amount of, you know, debt, total government debt, you know, relative to GDP was in a very similar area where, it in a in very high uh, like it is today. And one of the ways we we went from being that high to less than 30% or approximately 30% debt to GDP by 1980 or so Um one factor, we went from a 24% top marginal tax bracket up to 90% for a while, but we didn't go below 80% marginal tax bracket for about 20 years. So th- I don't think it would shock anybody to suspect that marginal tax brackets might, you know, increase. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, again, when you're making that decision, I take it then you're trying to get an idea of what you're – you know get your marginal tax brackets are going to be in retirement versus today, and then if they're going to be lower, you want to use the traditional today and get
2: the higher deduction yep.
0: and if you think they're going to be higher, you know you can do the do the roth
2: yep and, and as I tell most people they say i need the I need the magic answer like you know should I do traditional or roth? I need one or the other, and for most people, it's probably in between it's like you could probably go one way or the other, and it's probably going to go fine either way it's not one of those big drivers of your retirement how how you're going to live in retirement how you're going to be able to enjoy your retirement if you just wanted to maybe kind of like hedge your bet that's kind of what i do yeah. um i do some in traditional i do some in roth because i don't know of course what the future will hold entirely so i'm just trying to trying to just hedge it a bit and i have right so options. maybe uh
0: zero to 12 percent is automatic uh roth you know you pick the roth side uh maybe the next 10 percent up uh, you fifty fifty. You know, if somebody really wanted to have a reasonable strategy, if I think I'm going to be in the twenty two or, or a little bit higher tax bracket, uh, next couple up percent, um, you know, then I might every other year do one traditional and one Roth, or do fifty fifty if the plan allows for it.
2: Yep. Okay. And, and one thing I I don't want to skip over, you had brought it up earlier. So you talked about tax loss harvesting, but uh, there's a kind of the flip side of the coin. Is tax loss or tax gains? You can harvest the gains in a taxable account. So, if I can reset our mind here, we're we're not talking about uh, IRAs and 401Ks. Talking about taxable accounts for uh, households that maybe have uh, like a married filing jointly tax return. So, uh, you can earn about eighty thousand dollars and pay zero percent long-term capital gains rate on your taxable account investments. So, what you potentially have the ability to do is sell those positions that have, a, have uh, gains embedded up to that $80,000 or so amount for a, a married filing joint uh, tax household. Um, and all of the gains that you've sold on those positions will be 0% tax rate, um, which is a phenomenal tax benefit. And of course, you know if, if you don't exercise it in the year of the tax year, it's lost forever and immediately upon selling it you can essentially re- reinvest those funds right. there's not a phase out where you have to wait to reinvest those funds like you do ha- with tax loss harvesting with just harvesting capital gains at 0% you can just reinvest and lock in that 0% rate so you're just you're increasing the cost basis or the amount that you own in those shares
0: and that decision kind of goes along with the what whether we might do some roth conversions towards mm-hmm. the end of end of the year as well when you're trying to project what your tax bracket's going to be for this year you know, you might be deciding between harvesting long-term capital gains or converting some of your traditional Roth IRAs, uh, traditional IRAs to Roth, to to stay below a certain, you know, either zero on the long-term capital gain stance, or maybe I'll I want to uh, convert some of my traditional IRA up to a maximum twelve percent or you know a little bit higher bracket.
2: Right, because those two strategies are competing against each other. So right. As you as you do that, you're incurring income from your selling from your gains in your taxable account, or you're receiving income in the form of doing that Roth conversion. So those two are at are they're at odds, so to speak. So you just generally do one or the other. You can do both, but just know that those numbers are counting together.
0: Okay. What else on the four hundred one k side?
2: Um, so let's see. I think one simple thing, of course, would be just to review your beneficiaries in your four hundred one k, your IRAs. Uh, because that's one of those items that can be easily forgotten. I know for most folks, you probably set up uh, your 401k when you start working. You're working in um, years, maybe decades go by. You probably don't review those beneficiary designations. And maybe you have uh, children that you want to add to uh, the the beneficiary or have as contingent beneficiaries. Maybe you have a spouse who passes away or you've gotten divorced and you no longer want uh, half of your money or all of your money, however you've set it up. To go to an ex-spouse anymore. I don't know about you, Paul. I don't. I don't know if you would want maybe to give away all your hard-earned dollars after you've, you know, you've had a divorce. Well, but, all three
0: of them. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how much fun they're going to have in three dollars.
2: Yeah, but uh, for most people, that's generally not the the case. I do know one person who has their uh, ex-spouse as their beneficiary because it's been an amicable breakup. And, yep. you know, that's perfectly fine. And that, I've
0: seen them where they didn't make the change and the ex-spouse did get them.
2: Right. And so it's it's not uh, <clears throat> anything other than just making sure you're aware what those designations are so that your ultimate desire of where the money goes to, whether it's your spouse, ex-spouse, kids, whomever, it goes to where you want it to go.
0: What about people that are thinking about retiring before Medicare age 65? You know, a lot of people wait till that age because now they're going to get Medicare for their... Health insurance, mm-hmm. and they're worried that if they retire at sixty or you know or even earlier, that how are we going to come up with the healthcare issue? There's a variety of ways to get to it, but isn't having some money in a taxable brokerage account, in other words, non-tax uh, privileged account, not a, a non-retirement account, etc. Um, does it make sense for people to be is if they're thinking about getting out of work, you know, want the option to not work? Uh, to be thinking about building up a store of value in a you know a taxable brokerage account,
2: yeah, in a taxable brokerage account, or some people want it in just like a savings or checking account too i 'm more a proponent, depending on how much time you have between now and we 're actually retiring that you 'd want to have some of those dollars invested, so it 's not idling away in a savings account and losing that purchasing power, like we talked about earlier, but yeah that 's one of the simple strategies for anyone um, who thinks that they're going to need to retire early or they will retire early by choice. Uh, they need to be able to have a lower income potentially to qualify for the uh, ACA health credit, which is uh, what you know is colloquially called the Obamacare program, right. um, which have put in place this uh, lower cost by comparison health care marketplace. And as long as you have uh, stayed within certain um, thresholds of income, you can get highly subsidized health care. And it's not... To the point where it's like the quality of care is, is less. It's just that you don't pay as much because you qualify based on the amount of income that you have.
0: And so you'd use that taxable account maybe in the first few years of retirement to draw from, which really doesn't create much of a tax impact, if any, in order to manage your income level to where you can try to maximize that. And when they could be substantial, the uh, premium
2: subsidy. Right. I mean, you could instead of paying maybe a thousand dollars a month each person, uh, absent having this marketplace in place, you know, you could see sixty, seventy percent off of that. Right. Um, very common. And you can get these projections online, so you can run run but cost projections. But you have to think. Of,
0: but you need to be thinking years ahead. Exactly. That if that's coming at me, I need to. If I need to have the ability, you know, if you have all of your money in a 401k, for example, and and you're going to live out of that. Until Social Security kicks in and some of these things, and you need to, and have a high level of spending, you know that's going to all be taxable yep. and work against you. Whereas if you could take half, say say uh, I need four thousand a month to live on, well of course that would you'd be okay anyway. But let's say it's a couple and uh, they need eight thousand or so uh, a month to live on, you might try to say well let's let's take three of it. Per month out of your taxable brokerage account, so we can manage your income, your taxable income, okay. and your modified adjusted gross income, uh, in order to get a larger subsidy. Yep. We do the we do a lot of that right now, and I and son David was showing me how we have a, had a couple in this week that have basically a six figure uh, type income from all their sources, their withdrawals from the retirement plans, plus their Social Security, etc. cetera. Um, but now there's a new rule this year. I think because of the uh, COVID crisis, where they've made it even more lenient. It used to be quite a bit of a cliff. The minute you go a dollar over a certain amount, you really get you got you know your subsidies went radically down. That's really shifted now because now it's based on a percentage of your income.
2: And that, I think that'll make uh, the stress of the the decision a lot easier for folks. Whereas before, you're right. It was if you don't man- manage your income and you go a dollar over, it's it could be a four thousand dollar tax mistake. Um, so it, I think it 's a nice advantage, something that you know anybody should be considering using that marketplace if you 're considering retiring early prior to age sixty five when Medicare will show up
0: yeah i think there 's an impression that you know it 's a junkie you don 't want I to agree. be there, and we probably have a dozen clients on it at this point and it's it 's amazing because almost all of them have a million dollars or more in assets, uh, but yet they 're getting a su- substantial subsidy because it 's based on income, not on assets. And the feedback is as if they have insurance, just as if anybody else has it. It's just they're getting a subsidy. So it's not like you're going on Medicaid or anything, something like that.
2: Right, and and you can also opt into more or less expensive plans too. Right. So it's not like a one size fits all approach. So it it does give you really the option to choose the standard or level of care that you want or can afford. Um, so you they can have
0: control your out of pocket, and you know to whether you want a low deductible plan or a high deductible plan.
2: And they have different levels of plans, like bronze, silver, gold, for example. So the higher up, the more expensive, the more value of service you get. And depending on what your health care needs are and and what physicians you have to go see every year, it makes more sense for some to opt into the higher plans or you like the comfort of just knowing it's it's more coverage than maybe you'd get into a lower level plan. But it's a good option, I think, is the bottom line.
0: And then now we're heading towards, you know, when we get towards the end of the year, we always start thinking about, okay, we're going to have to get ready to get our tax return done. Um, what are some of the things we ought to be thinking about this time of year in preparation for that
2: um if you If you have the ability to potentially just start gathering your tax you know tax related documents, some of those are going to be available now, some won't uh, anyone that's got taxable brokerage accounts they're not probably going to have those tax statements till like January or February next year, so that's something almost everybody's waiting on to the last minute. I'm imagining if I were an accountant uh, tax preparer that's what drives me nuts the most is these brokerage firms waiting till you know 2 months into the year. Well, it's not only that. They
0: like last year they got so many rule changes right in the know, year. Right. Intra-year intra-year that, you know, uh, I know some CPAs that are seriously were thinking of I got to go get a different line of work. It was right. so aggravating.
2: Yeah, and that came off the uh the 2020 year where they kept pushing the tax date back, so it's like they never stopped working. Uh but that would be something you can do is um to start gathering the paperwork knowing kind of like if you sold anything in a taxable account, just kind of getting a sense of it. You can start roughing in what your income would have been for the year.
0: And try to get some kind of projection of what, what, you know, what you're looking at as far as what my tax brackets, my marginal tax brackets are going to be to see if there's some of the room for some of the maneuvers we talked about earlier, tax lost harvesting, tax gain, long-term gain ha- harvesting, uh, things like that. Exactly. Um, what other kind of tax things can we think about this type of year?
2: Um, so I think Not maybe here. as we maybe transition a little thought over to like gifting and, and estate planning a little okay. bit. Some things you could do is if for somebody who's maybe in a higher tax bracket, they've, they've I'm thinking of a retiree, they've uh, accumulated enough assets, they they're basically living on far less than they could, and they're in a higher tax bracket. But maybe they're charitably inclined; they could give to uh, kids or family or entities. It would allow them to potentially offload. Some of their investments that would be taxed at their higher marginal tax bracket level uh, by gifting like securities uh, like stocks or bonds out of a taxable account to their kids that might be in a much lower tax bracket. So, if if the kids sell them, maybe they sell them and they they get capital gains of um, you zero, know, zero to fifteen percent, which is the vast majority of folks. Whereas, if you are somebody in a higher tax bracket, uh, you are at fifteen to twenty plus. You have the the, uh, the Medicare surcharge tax of three point eight percent. Um so it just it allows somebody who might already be wanting to give to do so in a very tax efficient manner because it takes it out of maybe the higher tax bracket income household shifts it downward and still fulfills the objective of gifting or sharing. So that would be a simple a simple thing that anyone can do. You could talk with your advisor or call up your uh fund company and say, you know, are there some funds that maybe I could I could gift out and it's a fairly easy process to right. do.
0: And so what about uh, qualified charitable deductions? You know, we have so many of our clients, and it seems like almost all of them at this point, any charitable giving they do, they do it through their IRA accounts. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's still time for that, but then that's not one you want to wait for the last day or two of the year. These are ones you want to get done in the next week or so.
2: So the QCD or uh, qualified charitable distribution is a really nice tax provision that allows anyone who's 70 and a half or older to be able to gift up to $100,000 a year. So, it's a very large number um, that allows you to just take money out of your IRA, give it to a charity without having incurred that income on your tax return. So, by comparison, if you would have taken out, let's say you want to give $10,000 to your church, Uh, you took $10,000 out of your IRA, you sold it, you got cash, and you wrote a check to your church, Uh, that shows up as $10,000 worth of income on your tax return for 2021. By comparison, if you use what's called the Qualified Charitable Distribution method, you are able to sell $10,000 worth of s- stocks or bonds in your account. It goes directly to the church or this 501c3 charitable organization, whichever it may be, and it does not show up as earned income on your tax return.
0: And you're really thinking of adjusted gross income because that's where a lot of damage gets done. If, if that's too high, then you might end up paying higher Medicare premiums, et cetera. You would get the offsetting itemized deduction. Uh, but it's still preferable to do it through the IRA directly. Correct. And and, th- and if you have it set up, you could even have a checkbook on your IRA account, mm-hmm. and then the people can just write at their leisure the checks to those institutions themselves.
2: Yep. And, and it's a good policy to just keep a record of the of these uh, qualified charitable deductions or distributions that you're doing. Uh, that way you know that they're coded correctly when you you do your taxes or your your tax preparer does them so that they don't incorrectly mark them as distributions out of your account that you receive but are rather qualified as those charitable distributions. So that that can be a simple pitfall that can be easily miss, um, missed by your tax preparer if you don't tell them these were qualified charitable distributions. And,
0: and uh, you know, there's some others that we could talk about, but I thought I might spend – because we're just seeing so much. I'm going to switch gears on you. You don't, didn't know I was going to switch gears on you. But we're seeing more and more uh, people telling us that they've been hacked or they've got caught in a phishing attack, which you know, I'll let you explain some of these things. Over the next five minutes or so, can, can you just kind of highlight some of the really big ones, just things not to do? Uh, because it's they're getting so they look so good anymore and they look so real mm-hmm. um, you know we have a client that got caught in a phishing attack they were able, the person was able to get their bank information now they couldn't take money directly out of the bank uh, but they moved money from the savings account to the checking account and then you know it got all involved with a a refund that they were supposed to get, and we've overcredited you, so we accidentally put forty thousand in in your account um, so you need to send us a refund and Unfortunately, the client was sharp enough to go look at a savings account and recognize that what the person had done is shifted it to make it look like. They overcredited the account. Mm-hmm. That, that's just one example. And and I'm telling you, it's so easy to get caught, you know. I think people feel ashamed that they get caught in it. And I'm saying, welcome to the human race. These they do these things. They know they work well on a certain percentage of people. Yep. Well, what are some of the kind of the go to's? Just don't do these things.
2: I think from the simplest, email is like the biggest risk exposure that anybody has. And that means
0: somebody sending you an email. So
2: like having an email account in general okay. opens you up to risk. So you always have to be on your guard that any email coming in is a potential liability for you to have your information stolen, whether it's your personal name, Social Security, or financial information, any, any bank account numbers, anything along those lines. That's one of the biggest risks I think most people face, and it's the easiest gateway in for scammers.
0: Give an example. Like, you get an email. What might that look like?
2: So, for example, you get an email from some, like, service that you use. It says. Say Amazon. Amazon sends you an email. Hey, welcome. It's Prime Day or, or get, uh, Black Friday deals. Click here to, to see your special gift options or special rates that you qualify for. And you say, oh, sure. I'm already in, in the mood for gift buying this right. time of year. You click the link, not thinking twice about it. The email looks legitimate. And it says, log in here. It takes you to your Amazon page that purportedly is Amazon. Log in here to your account. And you do so, not thinking twice about it. And all of a sudden, what you've unknowingly just done is given your username and password over to the scam routers, a scam artist, someone trying to steal your, your information. And of course, for most people, you may have a credit card linked to your account in Amazon. And what they can easily do is start using that information, buying things, change your your password for Amazon, lock you out, and start making a bunch of payments or or, um, uh, purchases. And this can happen with any kind of of, um, service you use. So is it
0: fair to say at this point that there just ought to be a cardinal rule that you never click on a link from an email by itself you go to the main so if i'm if i get something from amazon i'm just automatically not going and it's not just amazon it could be anything yep your credit card company uh your any account anything. that that's, that looks convincing just don't read the email but don't click on anything go to their main site you know abc.com and see if there's any messages or information there uh If there are, it's going to show up. And if it's not, you know, it was a scam. So I think if there's any one rule, is, you know, they ought to have the ability and security that says, you switch a button that says, no links are clickable in emails so that they're, so it forces you to do that. But Mm -hmm. outside of that, because it, I don't, at least to my knowledge, doesn't exist, just you could probably eliminate a great deal of of the percentage of these problems. If you just had a policy, I'm never, ever, I don't care if it's from a relative. If it's a relative and I think it is, I'm gonna call them and say, did you send me? I mean, we do that, don't
2: we? Yep, certainly. It's like if you you get a, a, a family member that says, look at this cat video I just came across on YouTube. Uh, you can call them and say, hey, is this actually you? Or is this somebody trying to be you who's stolen your, your login information? I know it seems absurd, but that's the kind of, uh, you know, security you need to kind of keep for yourself so that you don't expose your yourself to any liability.
0: But. Yeah, I know we constantly, you know, we use know Before, which is a service that's always trying to spoof us yep. and teach us at the same time. So you go through a lot of learning videos, but then they're constantly sending you uh, emails that look legitimate and they're trying to trick you and just to, yep. you know, so that they could yell at you. So you can yell at us since you're the our Head compliance of, officer. You're the compliance officer.
2: Well, Paul, are you happy you got to have a, a special Thanksgiving show with just your son-in-law today?
0: Well, let's say it was special. It was special, you know, and I enjoyed it, and, as always. And uh, we'll probably have the whole crew crew back together in three weeks from today, the second Tuesday in December. Thanks for listening, and happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll be back in a few weeks.
1: Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM, WDWS, Champagne urbana a champagne Multimedia Group station.